break the law. Jesus Christ told you that 2,000 years ago. You don't understand me. That's your trouble. Not my fault because you don't understand me. I don't understand you either. But I don't spend my whole life trying to put the blame over on you because my cigarette didn't light or because something didn't work right. What do you want to call me a murderer for? I've never killed anyone. I don't need to kill anyone. I think it. I have it here. I don't need to live in this physical realm. I walk around in the physical realm and I put on the faces and I talk and I play and hang yeah, It's this big act, man. In the spiritual world is where I live. I exist in places you never even dreamed of. How do you feel about the fact that you're going to spend the rest of your life there? The rest of my life where? Right here. You guys are poor. You've been living a thousand illusions, man. The rest of your life where? In prison. In prison. What prison? You got a prison in your mind? You see what I'm saying? You're in prison, son. You're the one that's in jail because you think there is such a thing as a prison. So there we have the words of America's favorite charismatic psychopath, Charles Manson. Well, what can I say, folks? It's been a while, but uh, we've cleaned the cobwebs from this dark old closet over here at uh, Morlock Manor, which, of course, is located in the prestigious Wombat Estate subdivision, the gleaming jewel of Central Dell City. Today, we're going to talk about some facts, about some fiction, and how the two forever became intertwined when Quentin Tarantino decided to direct an homage to the city in which he grew up and decided to create a movie that uh, reflected the Hollywood of his youth. A Hollywood that was undergoing as much change and transition as the rest of the country. That's right, we're talking about Hollywood, California, and the film is what I consider to be one of the best films in the last 15 to 20 years, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, henceforth referred to as just Once Upon a Time. Uh, I think this is the first time I've ever done a deep dive on a film, now, I did have a show back in the early days about Penny Dreadful, City of Angels, which was also centered uh, in Los Angeles and Hollywood. But uh, again, this is the first attempt to tackle a film. And during the research and production of this particular show, I have to say that I don't really like this type of show too well. Uh, so this departure into film analysis uh, might just be a one-time thing. We'll just have to see how it works out. Uh, let me tell you this right now, this show is going to be heavily laden with spoilers, uh, but hey, you've had ample time to watch the film, so again, last exit for those wanting to avoid spoilers. Let's go ahead and uh, start with some film stats. Released in 2019, Once Upon a Time, uh, is Quentin Tarantino's eighth and most recent film. Uh, Tarantino says he has one more film in him, but... I didn't find any concrete evidence or information as to what this project might be. Um, Once Upon a Time is a little lengthy. has a runtime of 2 hours and 41 minutes. was, of course, directed and written by Quentin Tarantino. Uh, the film did garner two Academy Awards, one for Best Achievement in Production Design, and uh, Brad Pitt, rightfully so, uh, brought home the uh, Oscar for Best Supporting Actor. Now... In this film, we see Tarantino take the same track as he did in his earlier film, Inglorious Bastards, in which we see Tarantino give us an alternate ending to a story that everyone knows and knows well. It's as though he takes a time machine back to California and presents the uh, prevents the outcome we're all expecting. 
Uh, I got to tell you, there are a couple things I'd do if I had a time machine in California, but uh, that's a different story for a different show. So the year he takes us back to is 1969. Now, some of you fellow history buffs know a lot of stuff happened in 1969. Most notable of all, of course, was uh, Neil Armstrong taking the giant leap for mankind. But we also had Woodstock and the Summer of Love. Now, while Woodstock and the Moonshot were great things, uh, 1969 also gave us, to use a cinematic term, some foreshadowing of what current-day America sees uh, quite frequently, and that is uh, media coverage of mass murder. And in 69, the media coverage was quite intense because the victims were uh, of the rich and famous variety. Yes, of course, I'm referring to the Tate-LaBianca murders of August 1969. Now, those of you who have seen the movie know that while the helter-skelter, make-it-witchy crimes played a role in the film, they were not really the central focus of the film. The film, in fact, was very character-driven in that the events of the day took a back seat to the relationship of actor Rick Dalton, portrayed by Leonardo DiCaprio, and his stuntman counterpart in this little bromance, Cliff Booth. A role for, like I said, the role for which uh, Brad Pitt won the Best Supporting Actor. And if you hit up the show notes and check out the clip labeled Bruce Lee and Cliff Booth, you'll see a farcical clip that kind of establishes the tone that the audience needs to understand Cliff. Since the film is so character-driven, I wanted to take a moment to focus on the cast of characters and help you sort out some of who was real and who was purely fictitious, who was created for the film. So here in a somewhat sordid and scattered manner, I'm going to go over a list of characters and let you know who was real and who wasn't. I'm not going to go over all the cast, but just the ones that people may be wondering about. Uh, so here's who's real and who wasn't. Of course, Rick Dalton, portrayed by uh, Leonardo DiCaprio, he was a fictitious character. He might have been a compilation of several actors around the uh, period, but uh, for all practical purposes, yeah, Rick Dalton, a uh, fictitious individual. Cliff Booth, played by Brad Pitt, same thing. Fictitious character, possibly a composite of some of the uh, actors of the time. Uh, now, Sharon Tate, played by Margot Robbie, she was, in fact, a very real lady. Um, she was known for uh, films like uh, Valley of the Dolls. Now, all you guys in South Oklahoma City, calm down. That's not what I'm talking about. But uh, she was known for Valley of the Dolls. And the film in which she's portrayed in, once upon a time, Wrecking Ball. But... I got to know her and was first associated with her on, uh, believe it or not, the Beverly Hillbillies. She plays Janet Trigo, who is one of the girls in the secretarial pool there for Mr. Drysdale. Uh, we also have Jay Sebring, who was, in fact, a real person. He was a uh, hairstylist of the stars, uh, kind of one of the first guys to actually start branding himself as such. In fact, as as even up until the late 70s and early 80s, uh, the Sebring line of hair care products was pretty uh, pretty prolific. I, I remember them. I don't think they're still in business. They've probably been acquired by some conglomerate. But uh, yeah, this, uh, this particular film, 
Uh, Emil Hirsch is who plays Jay Sebring in the film, and uh, we'll talk a little bit about the characters and things like that a little further into the show. But uh, then we have Ag- Abigail Folger, uh, played by Samantha Robinson. Now, of course, she was indeed a real person. Uh, she was, as they stayed in the movie, she was the heiress of the for- uh, Folger's Coffee Fortune. Try saying that. And uh, she was a real person. And, uh, unfortunately, you know, she was one of the victims. Uh, we have Wojtek Furkowski, who was a victim as well, and he was real. I don't know too much about this individual. I really don't. I know that he was a friend of Roman Polanski, and, uh, that's really all I know about him. I know that, uh, there was some speculation that he was, uh, really close with Roman, and, some of the trouble Roman got into later, it's uh, hinted that he was involved with. So that moves us to Roman Polanski. Um, yeah, he was a very real person. Uh, in this film, he was played by Rafal Zawercha. I think I'm close on that pronunciation. I might not have nailed it. But uh, Roman had his uh, problems. We're going to talk about those later on. Um, one of the characters in the show that I really liked in is, uh, the character is James Stacy. Now, James Stacy was indeed a real actor. Uh, he's portrayed by Timothy Oliphant, who was in Deadwood and, uh, Justified. And he was also in The Mandalorian. So, uh, yeah, we've got Timothy Oliphant playing James Stacy. Now, in the, uh, in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, he's playing Johnny Madrid, who is the, uh, was basically the main character in Lancer. And, uh, tell you one thing interesting about, uh, Timothy Oliphant, uh, he does all his own gun work. So if it's a fast draw scene, it's most likely really him doing that. Uh, Trudy Fraser is the uh, character, and she's played by Julia Butter. Now, who she is, she's she's a fake. She's, uh, again, possibly uh, an amalgamation of several of the young actresses at that time. I've heard she's supposed to be somewhat loosely based on Eve Plum, who, of course, was Jan in The Brady Bunch. But in this particular film, she plays um, Marabella Lancer, the little girl in the, uh, in the scene with... Uh, Rick Dalton in the saloon. Uh, Bruce Lee, he was, of course, a real person. He was a uh, star of, you know, kung fu movies, martial arts movies. In this particular film, he is portrayed by Mike Moe, who I'm guessing probably has some martial arts background to his uh, credit as well. Steve McQueen, of course, I don't have to tell you, he was a real person. Now, in this particular film, and uh, Once Upon a Time, he's portrayed by Damian Lewis, uh, who was, of course, most, probably House was his biggest role, and he, of course, is real. He was an actor. He he died of lung cancer. I remember when he died. Uh, George Spawn, who's played by Bruce Dern, he was a real person as well. He was actually a, uh, he owned Spawn Movie Ranch, and he was an old guy that the uh, Manson family moved in and really, you know, took advantage of. And at first, I wasn't going to mention this guy's name just because it's a it's personal theory or a personal practice of mine, but I will. Uh, Charles Manson, who, 
I hope you all know was real. In this particular film, he is played by Damon Harriman, who also played Manson in another uh, series called Mindhunter. I'm sorry, Mindhunter, that I believe was on HBO. And an interesting fact is uh, Harriman also played alongside Timothy Oliphant in uh, Justified. And I wasn't going to uh, mention this individual either, but I do simply for one reason, uh, and that's Tex Watson. And the only reason I re- mention Tex Watson is because yeah, Tex was real. He, he, he is as real as a donut, and to my knowledge, he's still in prison. But the uh, only reason I bring him up is I want to uh, point out that he's portrayed by Austin Butler, who right now, if you guys don't know it, kind of adds some context to the time we're in right now. Austin Butler is just tearing it up with Tom Hanks over in there on the other screen with uh, portraying Elvis Presley. And uh, I'm going to tell you, I've seen the film probably two or three times. Uh, let me tell you something. Austin Butler holds his own with Mr. Tom Hanks in this particular film. Uh, If you haven't seen Elvis, I really strongly suggest you go see it. Uh, I'm not going to give away any uh, spoilers on that, of course. But uh, I will tell you folks, if you watch real close, there are some Easter eggs in Elvis that uh, pertain to Austin and his uh, portrayal of Tex Watson. Just kind of keep an eye out for those when you go see Elvis. And the next person I want to list is the narrator. Now, he's also not just the narrator. He also plays Randy, the stunt gaffer, uh, Kurt Russell. And uh, I bring that up because, well, Kurt Russell's cool. Kurt Russell's about as cool as you get. And you all know him from a ton of films. Uh, Probably Tombstone is what he stands out to for uh, in most most of your recollection. But uh, kind of a little Easter egg here. If you go see the new Elvis movies that I was just discussing with Austin Butler, if you go see that, uh, Kurt Russell's actually in that. He's in it for like a nanosecond. And you won't recognize him unless you know what you're looking for. If you look in the bottom left-hand corner of the screen, it's during a montage when they're uh, talking about all the horribly stupid movies Elvis was forced to make. There was one called It Happened at the World's Fair. And in that film, Kurt Russell, when he's like 10 or 12 years old, actually goes up and kicks Elvis in the shin. So if you look at the bottom left-hand corner of your screen and you're watching Elvis, and you see a little kid come up and kick Elvis in the shin, that's that's Kurt Russell. Now, we've established fact from fiction. Let's kind of look at the main characters a little more in depth. Uh, it's hard to say that Rick Dalton is the star of the show because Cliff actually steals most of the better scenes. But we see Rick's character hitting uh, a midlife crisis and a downturn in his career simultaneously. Uh, it's a lot like the story he's lays out for the audience when he's uh, talking about Easy Breezy. Now, Easy Breezy is a fictional character that's in a uh, dime store western that he's reading at the time. But the story is being told via the career path that Rick has been forced to undertake uh, during this transition point in his career. He's gone from being a staple of network TV back when we only had three choices, so really only the cream of the crop made it to the airwaves back in those days. And 
then, you know, he's a, now he's a man on his way out, except in bit parts and just about anything they'd throw at him. Now, in the show notes, I've added some links to what I feel are the best and most pivotal scenes uh, regarding Rick Dalton. Uh, if you check out the clips labeled Easy Breezy and Rick's trailer, you'll see him at the moments which defines his character. Uh, he really has to grasp his reality that he's uh, an alcoholic ne'er-do-well. And uh, my favorite scene, probably of the whole movie, because it's got some comic relief in it, which the audience needs at this point, is uh, in the last scene where Rick Dalton's out talking to Jay Sebring in the uh, cul-de-sac. And uh, they're talking about the, is everybody okay? And I've labeled that uh, in the in the in the show notes. I've got a clip there called uh, "Well, the hippies aren't okay." And uh, I really suggest uh, watching that if you've never seen the movie. It's it's a hilarious line. I just really like the way he delivers that. And then we've got his counterpart, literally Cliff Booth, played by uh, Brad Pitt, of course. Um, he's his constant companion, and as Kurt Russell describes him in the narration. A man more than a brother, but a little less than a wife. So, Cliff Booth is portrayed as a man who has a past cloaked in mystery. Now, media will tell you that... Uh, let's talk a little bit about Brad Pitt for a second. Media will tell you that Brad Pitt's from Springfield, Missouri, but uh, we all know that he was born in Shawnee, Oklahoma. So, yeah, Brad Pitt, Oklahoman. But now, one thing I wanted to touch here that I found kind of interesting that... A lot of the critics and everything thought was some kind of, you know, deeper meaning or something, and maybe it is, I don't know. In the opening credits, the names of DiCaprio and Pitt are juxtaposed onto one another, as though, yeah, like they're making some sort of weird statement. But uh, what to even take that a little bit further, uh, we learn that Rick Dalton, you know, the character portrayed by DiCaprio, Rick Dalton is supposedly from Missouri, whereas... You know, in real life, uh, Brad Pitt's supposedly from Missouri. I know that has nothing to do with character or plot, just something I picked up on. Now, as for Cliff, it's suspected, but never really proven in the film, that he killed his wife, but I'll give you guys a teaser. Uh, they say if you read the book, uh, you find out whether he did or didn't kill his wife. So, we've kind of got three groups of characters. We've got the actors... We've got the victims, and we've got the Manson family. Um, I want to talk a little bit about James Stacy, who, like I said, portrayed by Timothy Oliphant, who uh, was... I bring him up mostly because uh, he was, you know, my mom's favorite actor, and she really loved Lancer, but uh, one of the things we see there, where we see some foreshadowing, uh, which... Tarantino does really well, is at the end of the day, we see James Stacy hop on his motorcycle. He believes it's triumph, I believe. And he rides out a lot after a long day's shoot. And kind of what makes that uh, relevant is later on in his life, James Stacy had a uh, horrific motorcycle accident that literally cost him an arm and a leg. And I, I don't say that tongue-in-cheek. The man's arm and leg had to be amputated, and it didn't kill him. But, you know, it it, uh, it seriously, you know, 
shortened his life. And like I said, my mom was a huge James Stacy fan. And uh, in fact, uh, during the last few days of her life, uh, she actually watched a few, um, she probably watched 10 or 12 of the Lancer episodes back to back that I'd recorded for her. So I kind of threw that in there. And kind of a uh, crowd favorite or a fan favorite. Now, I never was a big uh, fan of this guy, but a lot of people were. Uh, Luke Perry. Luke Perry plays uh, Wayne Maunder. Now, Wayne Maunder was another actor on Lancer. Uh, if you guys watch the film, he's the Boston Lancer. He's the one from Boston that uh, fought in the uh, war with the English. So I wanted to throw that out because it wasn't very long after the production wrapped up that uh, Luke Perry, you know, died of a series of strokes at age 52. So, you know, for all you Luke Perry fans out there, I kind of wanted to bring that up for you. Uh, another actor, I mean, uh, Dean Martin. I mean, what can you say? Dean Martin was Dean Martin. I mean, Dean Martin is so cool that I kid you not, the other day I ran across a 12-year-old who actually had Dean Martin on their playlist. So, you know, what does that say about a 1950s icon who still has a growing fan base reaching kids today? Now, of course, Dean Martin plays Matt Helm in the film, which uh, Sharon Tate was uh, watching, viewing, starring in, The Wrecking Crew. Now, I've never seen that particular movie. There are four Matt Helm movies. I have seen, I think, two of them. The only one I can really remember, I think, is called... Uh, uh, Pretty Maids All in a Row, I think, is the one I saw. And what they are is they're really, really poor Bond knockoffs. Uh, the only difference, well, they have Dean Martin in it, so that, you know, kind of makes it better than most Bond films, that in and of itself. And another actor that is mentioned uh, in the uh, film, and depicted uh, is Steve McQueen. And there's a lot of in... Steve McQueen, okay, we do know this. Uh, Steve McQueen was the quintessential cool guy. He was... You just didn't get any cooler than uh, Steve McQueen. And there's a theory, of course... Well, let me back up a little bit. It is well known that Steve McQueen was supposed to be in attendance at the uh, Tate household, the night of the murders. He was supposed to be there. And whether or not that was public knowledge or not, I don't know. But Steve McQueen was not there. He uh, actually kind of met some girl on the way and got diverted and went off with old girl. And uh, so therefore that saved his life. But, uh, now, had Steve McQueen been there on that night, um, I think the outcome would have been significantly different. Let me tell you why. Steve McQueen was almost always armed, and he knew how to use the weapon. And it's just like our imaginary uh, Cliff Booth. Uh, McQueen was a war hero, but beyond being a war hero, he was, uh, he was a man with a checkered past himself. He, uh... He was no stranger to criminal activity, so he probably wouldn't have too much pause to drop the hammer on somebody. 
I mean, his known crimes were, he was actually the wheelman, the driver on a few robberies. He worked as a pimp. He sold illegal firearms. You know, hence, uh, Steve McQueen, not so clean. So I really have to wonder if Tarantino factored that into the, basically the outcome of this, you know, this this story. I mean, let's face it. I think a well-trained, well-armed combat veteran who did his own stunts, kind of a tenuous reference to our man Cliff, I think he'd be more than capable of dispatching Tex and three hysterical Charlie lovers. Now, another thing that most people don't know, and this might have been, I say I don't know if it was public knowledge because I don't know if Manson knew about it or not that uh, Steve McQueen was going to be there. But it's a known fact. It came out during the trials. Uh, One of Charlie's own uh, disciples, basically, admitted that uh, one time Steve McQueen just beat the crap out of Charlie. Uh, Resulted in Manson going to the hospital with a broken nose. What happened was Manson approached him outside his production company with a uh, screenplay that he wanted to uh, submit to see if it could be produced and, you know, eventually made into a movie. And McQueen basically gave him the brush off, you know, saying, hey, I don't have time to mess with you. Allegedly, Manson got a little agitated and it led to a little bit of shoving. And then McQueen broke his nose. So, like I say, I don't know if Manson knew that, or knew that McQueen was supposed to be there. But I want to kind of talk about another outlier, as I like to call him, that uh, really, in a way, I'm not going to say he's responsible for all this. Uh, In the film, we see Charles Manson. He walks up and he's talking to Jay Sebring. He says, hey, I'm a friend of uh, Terry and Brian. Now, who he's talking about is Terry Melcher and Brian Wilson. I'm sorry, Dennis. Dennis Wilson. My bad. It's Dennis Wilson, the drummer, not Brian. But um, let me tell you a little bit Terry Melcher. Terry Melcher was a very influential uh, music producer at that time. And he worked with some pretty big names. Of course, the Beach Boys. That's thus his affiliation with Dennis Wilson. But he also worked with the Birds. He uh, produced Hey, Tam- Mr. Tambourine Man. And it is a fact that Charles Manson did write a song and... I'm not defending Charles Manson in any way, shape, or form. I don't even like saying the man's name. But Terry Melcher, yeah, he ripped Charles Manson off. He used some of the lyrics and a couple of the riffs or whatever of a song called Learn Learn to Not to Love. I can't remember I'm butchering the title, but that's okay. It was actually recorded by the Beach Boys, but it was you know, highly edited, and uh, basically he he stole Charlie's song, changed it enough that he could get by with the copyright and everything, and uh, hence that's why Manson hated Terry Melcher so bad, and by association, Dennis Wilson. In the film, in fact, but what I don't understand, and I'll look into this more into the real-life crimes, They say Charles Manson knew that Terry Melcher no longer lived 
I'm kind of getting ahead of myself. Terry Melcher, if you don't guys didn't know, pick it up in the film, Terry Melcher used to live in the house where the Tate murders took place. He had moved out prior to that. In fact, that's you know shown in the movie when uh, Manson's talking to Jay Sebring. He says, no, they don't live here anymore. But for some reason, he hated him so bad that he wanted he wanted his people to just go kill the people that even lived in the same house that Terry Melcher once lived in. I mean, you know, nobody's ever really accused Charles of being, you know, the most sane. But, um, so that's how all of this came to be, is his extreme hatred for Terry Melcher. And by the way, just a quick little fact, uh, some people know this, some don't. Terry Melcher is the son of uh, one of America's most beloved uh, actresses and singers, Doris Day. So yeah, Terry Melcher, uh, Doris Day's son, both of which have passed away now. So yeah, that's just kind of something to keep in the back of your mind. Um, let's talk about Roman Polanski. I don't want to talk about Roman Polanski any more than I have to because... I got to tell you, of course, in real life, Roman Polanski was there. He was off doing some work for a film. Um, you talk about foreshadowing. If Roman Polanski had been there that night, August 9th, I think, um, of 69, the world would have been a better place. Well, yeah. Because let me read you guys a little bit of the snippets about uh, Roman Polanski. Uh, most people already know his story, but for those of you that don't, I'm going to give you a little background on this fine, upstanding individual. On March 10th, 1977, then 43-year-old film director Roman Polanski was arrested and charged in Los Angeles with six offenses against Samantha, I'm not going to give her last name, victim protection here, a 13-year-old girl. Uh, for unlawful sexual intercourse with a minor, rape by use of drugs, perversion, sodomy, lewd and lascivious acts upon a child under 14, and furnishing a controlled substance to a minor. Now, at his arraignment, he pled not guilty to all of the charges, but later, he took a plea deal. The terms included dismissal of five of the charges in exchange for a guilty plea to the lesser charge of engaging in unlawful sexual intercourse with a minor. Think about that. He cops to that. He admits unlawful sexual intercourse with a minor, whom we know to be 13 years old. Now, it is rumored that, you know, uh, Wojciech, of course, Wojciech wasn't involved in that, but uh, Furkowski was basically into the same thing, and that's how they knew each other, was through their little child molestation ring. So, uh, yeah, so that tells you a little bit about Polanski. Um, he underwent a court-ordered psychiatric evaluation, and he was placed on probation. Yeah, he got probation for that. I guess that's what, uh, justice looks like in Hollywood, um. Try that case in uh, Pawhusko, Oklahoma, and see if he gets away with probation. But anyway, he underwent psychiatric evaluation, placed on probation. Upon learning that he was likely to face some prison time, though, and subsequent deportation, 
uh, Polanski became a fugitive from justice, fleeing first to London and then to France in February of 78, just hours before he was due to be formally sentenced. Since then, Polanski's lived mostly in France, and uh, he's avoided visiting any countries likely to extradite him to the United States. And uh, that's really all we're going to say about Roman. I don't think we need to give him any more voice or any more airtime. Uh, I will say this, though. One thing that's kind of, uh, I'd mentioned foreshadowing earlier. Uh, in the film, we see Sharon Tate going to a drugstore, I'm sorry, a, bleh, a bookstore, and she sees the Maltese Falcon, and she talks to the man behind the counter who is actually Clue Gulliger, who actually resided here in Oklahoma City, and uh, actually taught some film courses out at the uh, local community college. But anyway, she wants a copy, and I'm probably going to butcher the pronunciation. She wants a copy of the book by, I think it's Thomas Hardy wrote uh, Tess, Tess D'Urbervilles. She wants a copy of that book for her husband. Now, uh, where the foreshadowing comes in is later on in life, uh, that was the movie that Polanski was making. He was making Tess D'Urberville, which uh, starred Natasha Kinski, if you guys remember that particular version. That's the film he was making at the time he got involved with the 13-year-old girl. So, yeah. Uh, like I said, a little bit of foreshadowing there. Um, other good examples of uh, foreshadowing. Uh, when Cliff goes to fix the antenna at uh, at uh, Rick's house, you know, where he does a little parkour thing and hops up on the roof without a ladder. Yeah, I hate people that can do that. But anyway, when he's in the tool shed getting this necessary stuff, we see the flamethrower. In fact, they almost zoom in on it. Foreshadowing there. So, yeah, Rick Dalton definitely had a uh, flamethrower in his tool shed. Uh, one of the things that I found uh, kind of unique foreshadowing uh, is when Brad Pitt's driving, at some point, um, he's... And this song is not included on the soundtrack, but we hear Neil Diamond sing Brother Loves Traveling Salvation Show. Or I think it's just Brother Loves Traveling Show. Anyway, but the opening line to this song is Hot August Night. And as they tell us at some point later in the film that, uh, I believe it was August 9th, they allude to that as being the hottest night of the year. Now, whether it was or wasn't, I actually did a little checking, and I didn't find anything to definitively say what the high temperature was in Los Angeles that particular night. So maybe that's just, you know, artistic implementation or something. Um, another thing that people talked about foreshadowing was another song. Uh, Rolling Stones singing uh, Out of Time. Um, a lot of people said that was, you know directed at Sharon and them that they were out of time because at the time, you know, nobody knows how the ending came. So they said, and I can see how they would see that that was out of time, was pertaining to, you know, Sharon and Jay and Abigail and Fukowski. But I think the more I watch it, I think it actually pertains to uh, Cliff and Rick because... We go back, right before they come back from Italy, we see Cliff and Rick having the uh, discussion where, 
you know, Rick tells him, basically, I can't afford you anymore. And once we get back to the States, you know, our run as a pair, as a duo, are over because I can't afford you anymore. And uh, so I think that's probably what Out of Time was alluding to. And I tell you, it's something to kind of watch for in the movie if you haven't already. Uh, when they're unloading the luggage during Out of Time by the Rolling Stones, uh, even the steamer trunk's sad. If you look at the handle, it's turned up to where it looks like a frowny face. So I, you know, I thought that was kind of interesting. I'm again, not really anything super artistic, just kind of interesting. And let's see if there's any other foreshadowing. No, I'm. You know, the '60s gave us so much good music, but really. There was not much music, at least on the soundtrack. Um, now, like I said, you hear some stuff in the background by Neil Diamond. In fact, you hear a couple songs by him. But they weren't included in the motion picture soundtrack, and I'm sure that had to do with copyright and things like that. But uh, on the soundtrack, we really just get two songs worth listening to, in my opinion. Uh, the first of which is a Circle Game by Buffy St. Marie. And we see that while Sharon's driving the Porsche through town and she picks up the hitchhiker. And yeah, to anybody uh, that might be younger, hitchhiking was a thing in the 60s and it was relatively safe. I mean, a lot of people, I had, I guess he was a second or third cousin or something like that, that that's all he, he'd work all, all winter. He'd work and save up his money and just hitchhike throughout the summer. Hitchhike all across the U.S. I remember my mom talking about him. I don't remember his name, but... Uh, then we got another great song called Don't Chase Me Around by Robert Korff. And we hear this song when uh, Cliff's walking through Spawn Ranch. And I can't remember if it's before or after he beats down Clem. I think it's before. And uh, so really the movie, well... Um, you know, it's hard for me to imagine, but I, I, I know podcasts generally portray, or I'm sorry, play to a uh, much younger crowd than myself. And that being the case, it's, uh, you know, I can't imagine anybody not knowing the real story of what happened. And then when you're watching the movie, and I remember... Somebody said, go see the movie quick before the spoiler gets out. And I thought, what could that be? And so that right there intrigued me enough to go see it. And I don't know how they kept the secret. I don't know how they keep it. The only thing that was kept a better secret was Han Solo. And if you didn't know about that, sorry, folks, I just ratted that one out too. But uh, yeah, but, of course, we all know, and let me kind of recap this for those that have never seen the film. In the film, it shows the Manson family, the the people, Tex, and uh, I'm not going to mention the three other females. Like I said again, I'm, I'm not going to mention their names. They just, no, they just don't warrant it. But anyway, basically what happens is they're going there to kill the Polanskis, and they get the wrong house. And they just happen to get the house where Brad Pitt, who is a badass in the movie, well, probably in real life too, uh, he's, you know, he's the war hero, the stunt man, and uh, 
Cliff Booth and his dog just, uh, in other words, they picked the wrong house to rob. And the funniest, one of the funniest scenes of the whole movie is when he throws a can of dog food at this uh, attacker that's, she's running head on at him and he just drills her with a can of dog food. And it's hilarious. And I, I bring that up because um, the other day I was sitting in waiting for some movie. I can't even remember what it was. And there was a trailer for Brad Pitt's new movie called Bullet Train. And he does the same thing um, in the trailer. He, he, he doesn't throw a can of dog food, but he throws a, a, a bottle of water and hits somebody right in the head and takes them out. Uh, so, yeah, that's kind of a correlation there. I can't help but wonder if they didn't get that idea from the uh, Once Upon a Time. Well, folks, I try to keep these less than 45 minutes because, uh, unlike me, I'm sure you folks have a life and better things to do. So I appreciate you sticking around here. Um, on a kind of personal note, uh, been some significant changes in my life since the last uh, podcast. And uh, for those of you that know, my closest personal friends know. And for those of you that have offered your support, uh, saying thank you isn't enough. And to say that I appreciate you would be the biggest understatement uh, of my life. So you folks know who you are. Everybody that's supported me through these rough times. Appreciate it. You be good. Stay safe. And uh, I'll see you guys uh, whenever I turn out the next one of these. I want to do them more often. Of course, I always say that, but then I fall into a rut and don't put anything out. Uh, no Marvel bonus on this, so uh, if you want to go ahead and listen to the uh, catchy uh, exit music, feel free to, but don't hold on for a Marvel bonus. Uh, I really appreciate you guys, and uh, like I said, hopefully I'll be getting one of these out again soon. Thank you. Thank you.